If you haven't, go to Luke 22. Luke 22. We had been all um, this fall going through the book of Acts, and we stopped for Advent, which is just a celebration culminating in the birth of Jesus on Christmas. And we are going through a four-week sermon series called Meals with Jesus, or A Meal with Jesus. And we're looking at four different meals, different types of meals that different people had with Jesus and looking at what made it so important. I know Josh talked about this last week that you really can divide up the book of Act, or the book of Luke and Jesus is either going to a meal, he's eating a meal, or he's leaving a meal. That's kind of the book of Luke. That's why it's so important that we're looking at this today. So we're going to look at Luke 22, which is a feast, a meal, unlike any other. Now, for most of us, I assume we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm assuming that for the sake of this illustration. And so I'm about to turn 33 in a few months. And so I did some quick math. And um, yeah, I'm getting kind of old. I did some quick math. Um, and uh, there's, there's math. And there's sometimes Stephen math. So I checked my work. Um, and I'm pretty sure I'm right. And so if you add up all the meals I've had in my lifetime, it's around 36,000 meals breakfast, lunch, and dinner. This isn't counting snacks or Taco Bell second dinner. These are just meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, around 36,000 meals. And honestly, it's hard to remember them all. I don't remember even probably what I had most of my dinners or lunches last week. And yet, I think it's really, really interesting that food has this way of lodging in our memories. The smells, the ingredients, the texture of the food, the warm conversation that you have, food really does have this way of really lodging in our memory. And yet, it's hard to remember all 36,000 of the meals I've had. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could count 100 of the meals I've had in my lifetime. And as I was thinking about this, I do remember some of them, some meals I've had, and they're some of the most impactful meals that I've had. And honestly, when I think of my relationship with my wife, whose name is Lisa, I'm reminded that many of the stories and the memories that really lodge in my memory are surrounded around food. When we were seniors in college, we went to Africa, and we had many meals that I remember, but I remember one in particular, and it was so random. But we were sitting with these Lebanese brothers and um, having this huge festive meal. I remember there was swordfish and all this wonderful food. And it was really meaningful because I remember... That was the first time I just subtly told Lisa I had a crush on her, and um, she got it, and that, that, those were the days that I actually thought I had game. And so um, I just remember that. I remember what she was wearing. I remember we were sitting, and not just because I have pictures of it, though I do, but it was just so wonderful of a time, and it was all around food. Or I was thinking of my first date with Lisa, and <laughs> the restaurant was clothes that I wanted to go to, and so I called an audible at the last minute, and we went to Johnny Rockets. If you don't know what Johnny Rockets is, it's a terrible burger place in Seattle. Um, I think it's a chain, but we went there, and I remember while I was sitting, I remember what she was wearing. I remember that she sent her burger back because it wasn't cooked right, and I was just devastated thinking, this is the worst night ever. I'm never going to come back from this. Just everything about it, as you can imagine, my leg was just tapering all night. I accidentally touched her hand and thought, oh my gosh, like this is kind of crazy. I just remember that. It was such a wonderful experience. And then about two years later, I remember when we got married, and the first meal we had as a married couple, 
And so we went and uh, our reception was in her backyard. She has a, a nice big backyard. And so we were worried on a couple fronts when it came to our first meal as a married couple. So one of the things is, if you know my wife, she is a relational person is an understatement. And so she really wanted to relate to people and talk with people and really experience that. It came on kind of, um, we had two friends who had just gotten married and uh, their reception lasted like 30 minutes and they were just out of there. And so we were like, we are going to have a really long reception and we're going to experience and laugh and dance. And so knowing that, I thought, there's no way we're going to eat. There's no way just doing a reception line and talking with people and thanking them and celebrating and dancing. There was absolutely no way that we were going to eat. And so what we did is we got into her parents' house and we snuck up to their bonus room and her mom brought us just plates of pasta. um, I married into an Italian family, so of course there was pasta and gelato. And uh, we... We ate with little plates on our laps, right? My wife and her, like, wedding gown. And in the bonus room, just the two of us just eating as fast as we could so we could get down. It was just this memory. And it just reminded me of our importance of wanting to welcome people and relationships because meals, they point to things. They point us in a direction. And that's really the wonderful power of meals. And though meals are all important, not every meal is created equal, is it? Not every meal is created equal. Some meals are much more important than other meals, as is the case for the first time I got to eat with my wife after we were married. And see, our text here today, Luke 22, it highlights a meal. It's a meal that puts, in some sense, and in almost every sense, every other meal to shame. It has been called many things through church history. It's been called the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, Communion, the Eucharist, the breaking of bread, the sacrament or ordinance, or maybe my favorite because I just discovered it, or the divine liturgy, and it's this thing right in front of us. And before we begin, and before actually that night, before Jesus sat down with his disciples and apostles, and he kind of transformed, he consummated what this was, it was called the Passover. And... Really, what I want to do here tonight is something really, really simple. Your Bibles actually might actually break it up this way, but this story is really broken up into three big parts. If you look at verse 7, you'll see in verse 7 to verse 13, I want to just highlight that Jesus prepares the meal. Jesus prepares the meal. And then from 14 through 23, that Jesus is the meal. And then I want to highlight and show you that in verse 24 through verse 30, that Jesus, in this event, he serves the meal. He is the servant of the meal. So Jesus prepares the meal, Jesus is the meal, and Jesus, in this event, he is the servant of this meal. And what I want to do is then I want to just highlight those, and then I want to walk through some implications, the so what, why is this important, what does this have to do with any of us? Why is this important? So first, Jesus prepares the meal. Jesus prepares the meal. We'll look in verse 7, if you will. It says this, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had been sacrificed. Then came the day before the Passover. Now, the Jewish calendar was punctuated by festivals. 
which is totally normal. We do this too, right? As Americans, we have Fourth of July, you've got Christmas, Thanksgiving, Labor Day, Independence Day. We have all of these things that kind of punctuate and we get days off the American calendar. And the Jewish people were similarly, they had these festivals, really important festivals, and they punctuated the calendar. They reminded people of what this was all about. And so, just like all of our festivals or all of our big moments like the 4th of July, they point to something, right? The 4th of July represents something as Americans. It represents our freedom from, our independence from England. The signing of the Declaration of Independence Day, that's what we celebrate. And so the event, 4th of July, points to something bigger, something that happened in time and history. And just like that, the Passover, the Passover, it represented something. It pointed to something in history. And it pointed to this. It's a story that happened way back in your Bibles, if you go all the way back to Genesis. And it's a story that has at its theme the land. The land is a prominent theme within the Bible, an important theme. And it's not just any land. There was a land of blessing, a land that God promised. And he goes to Abraham in Genesis and he says, I'm, I'm going to give you a land. I need you to follow me. I need you to go to where I go and I'm going to bless you. It was a land filled with milk and honey. It was bountiful. It was a blessing. And he said, go. And Abraham went. And he eventually got to the promised land. And when he was at the promised land, he eventually had a son. And that son's name is Isaac. And then Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had many sons, and one of them was named Joseph. Now, the interesting thing about Joseph is Joseph was the favorite of Jacob. The favorite. And as you can imagine, if I have a twin brother, and so I can only imagine what happens when one sets one, who's not even the eldest, who's one of the youngest, is the favorite of the dad. Well, bitterness, frustration came, and eventually such anger and hostility set in between Joseph's brother that they went to kill him. And instead of killing them at the last second, they decided to enslave them to, and to enslave Joseph. And so Joseph is enslaved and sent back to Egypt. And it's there in our narrative in Genesis chapter 36 that our setting changes. Our setting changes from kind of Palestine, Israel to Egypt. And the whole story up until Genesis 50 takes place in Egypt. And God blesses Joseph. Amazing things happen. And so the people of God, as a result of famine and all these circumstances, start settling in Egypt. And for about 300 years, the people of God, the Israelites, grew in numbers, and they grew, and they grew, and they grew. And something happened. Eventually, Pharaoh and the Egyptian court started to despise them. They were too numerous, that they were, they were too this or they were too that. And so he kind of decides that he's going to enslave them. And then it kind of culminates in Exodus 1 and 2 that he's, Pharaoh is going to kind of create this edict that says every firstborn son is going to be murdered. Right? If, if a son is born, what's the midwife, the Egyptian midwives were supposed to just cast him out. And that's where we meet in Exodus 2, Moses. And Moses survived. He survived. And eventually, Moses has an altercation with Pharaoh. Eventually, he's risen up and God said, I'm going to use this guy, not because there's anything great with him, but I'm going to use this guy, Moses, to lead my people out of Egypt into the promised land once more. And so he uses Pharaoh. And so on one particular day, God tells Moses to go to Pharaoh and he says, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he does. 
And Pharaoh, I'm assuming, and he says more or less this. He said, do you know who you're talking to? I mean, at that time, Moses or, uh, Pharaoh was a god. He was thought of as a god. He was worshipped as a god. And so here's Moses coming to Pharaoh, worshipped as a god, and said, you need to let my people go. God has said so. Let my people go. And Pharaoh's like, no. And so there ensues the ten plagues. And so we've got gnats and flies, and then Nile is turned into blood, and livestock die, and boils and frogs and all these certain things. And it all culminates and climaxes in the angel of death was going to come. The angel of death himself was going to come and take the lives of every firstborn son. So Pharaoh's own son is now at risk, the tenth plague. And what, what, what were they going to do? I mean, Pharaoh for a moment's like, oh, this is pretty serious. And then he's like, no. His heart is hardened as a result of the story. He hardens his heart and says, nope, sorry. I don't even care if this is your threat. I don't care that these last nine things happen. I'm still not going to let you guys go. And so the angel of death is coming, and so Israel comes together. Moses said, okay, this is what God has told me. This is, this is what you need to do. You need to sacrifice a lamb. And what I want you to take is take, take that blood, and I want you to smear it over the roof or the, over the doorpost of your door. And when you do that, the angel of death is going to pass over you. And as a result of that, your sons will live. But if you don't, the angel of death is going to visit and your son will not live. And so that's exactly what they do. The angel of death comes. Pharaoh's son dies. And so Pharaoh eventually says, enough is enough. And he lets the people go. And so Moses leads them out, and they wander in the wilderness for many years, for an entire generation, and then eventually they get to the promised land, and then in Deuteronomy 16, something happens. Or in Deuteronomy 16, God says, this is what I want you to do when you enter the land. He says, I want you to enact a festival, a festival. I want you to, every year, I want you to remember how I led you out of Egypt into the promised land. All of the things, all of the aspects. I want you to remember your affliction, your slavery, your brokenness. And I want to remind you through this festival, this yearly meal that you're going to do of all the different elements of how I led you out of the promised land, in, out of Egypt into the promised land. And so that's what they did. So every year since then, every year, the Passover happens. People gather, families gather, and they enact this story. They tell elements of this story to remind themselves of all that God has done. And that's what we see here in uh, verse 7 of chapter 22. It's time for the Passover. Every Jew celebrated Passover. And so we fast forward a thousand years, and we arrive, and Israel is celebrating Passover. And so what does Jesus do? He says, okay, we're going we're gonna to celebrate this. And right before this, in your Bibles, you see that Judas betrays Jesus. And so there's kind of some secrecy that's happening. And Jesus says, okay, we're going to have to do this in secret because I know that they're coming for me. But the time is not right. And so he sends out Peter and John. And so I want us to think through a really important question uh, uh, with regards to verses 7 through verses 13. And it's this. What is Jesus' role initially in this? What's the role Jesus plays in this. And I think we have an answer in this section. And so sometimes when you're reading your Bibles and you see a word and it keeps on being repeated, that should be a, a gong that's going off in your mind and your heart going, hey, this is important. 
And there's a word that comes out four times in this section. It's the word prepare. It happens in verse 8 and in verse 9, verse 12, and verse 13. Prepare, preparation, preparing for the Passover. So that being said as an important theme in this, my question is this. Who is it that prepares the meal? And I don't mean this as a rhetorical or kind of trick question, but seriously, who, who prepares the meal? And I think we've got two options, Peter and John or Jesus. So I kind of want to think through this. Who is it that actually prepares the Passover here in this text? Who is it that prepares this meal? Well, on the surface, I think we think, well, it's Peter and John. I mean, they're sent, they gather a lamb, they purchase it, they then take it to the temple, they then have it sacrificed, then they go back, they roast the lamb, they get all of the trimmings, they get all the different elements, they get the wine and bread, they get everything. Of course, it's them who prepares the meal. But before we just assume that Jesus, or assume that Paul or Peter and John are those that prepare the meal, I think we need to look at what is it that Jesus does in this narrative? Well, if you look, starting in verse 8, we see that Jesus sends Peter and John. They didn't go on their own command. Jesus actually commands them and says, go, go and do it. He sends them out. Second, we see that Jesus gives Peter and John detailed directives, detailed directives of what they're supposed to do. Third, we see that Jesus tells them to follow this mysterious man, right? which is really bizarre, especially in those days because men did not carry water in jugs. Women did. Men carried them in little sashels, leather sashels. And so it's really curious. He says, follow this man. So somehow he had prepared that this would happen, either supernaturally or physically telling some guy to, hey, hold, a, um, hold some water in a jug as to be a marker so that my disciples will follow you. So he, he does that, which is crazy. He prepares in advance this man. Right? Fourth, Jesus tells them to go to a mysterious house to follow this man. And then Jesus prepares a suitable room and there had to be a table. There had to be couches to recline on. There had to be all these different elements. And Jesus said, they're all going to be there. And then Jesus allows time for them to prepare. I think if we read this text, we really see that Peter and John aren't those who are the, Peter and John aren't those that actually prepare the Passover. It was actually Jesus. Jesus was he who prepared the Passover. Which you might go, that's kind of cool. That's interesting. But I don't get what, how that impacts my life at all. So here's some implications. If Jesus prepares this, if Jesus prepares the ultimate Passover, which he's going to kind of transform and highlight and consummate in many ways, if Jesus really does prepare the meal, then here are a few implications of that. So first, we approach this table, we approach communion, not as a host, but as an invited guest. Right, we approach this table not as a host, but as an invited guest. Hosts prepare. Guests enjoy. And so as we come to this table, which we will later, you come as an invited guest. You don't come as the host. You don't come as he or she who actually prepared this. It was prepared by Jesus himself. And then second, if Jesus prepares it, and this is just outrageous. He can invite anyone he wants to it. If Jesus prepares it, if he's the host, then he can invite any person to it. 
So it doesn't matter your race, your ethnicity. It doesn't matter what you have done or might not do or how egregious your sin is or secretive your sin is. It doesn't matter your economic status. It doesn't matter what kind of family you grew up in. It doesn't matter the wonderful family you grew up in, maybe, or all of your religious pedigree. It doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account or your social class or how much you know of, about the Bible. It doesn't matter your IQ. It doesn't matter what you got on the SITs. None of those matter because at the end of the day, if Jesus prepares the meal, then he gets to decide. He invites. He's the host. And so there's this kind of washing, this egalitarian aspect where each and every person, regardless of race, regardless of all these different things that divide, Jesus himself is he who gets to invite. It's on his term, not on ours, which is crazy when you think of how often so many religions are so ethnocentric. I mean, just think of all of the different world religions and how, for the most part, they haven't traveled from their birthplace. And yet, if, if statistics are right, the kind of the center for Christianity right now is Africa, Asia, and Latin America. It's not Europe. It's not a white religion. I mean, it started in the East and started migrating ever since. And so this table really does represent this wonderful inclusion of all races, all people, regardless of what you've done, regardless of what you've said, regardless of what you've experienced. And then, thirdly, if Jesus prepares the meal then this meal is foundationally about God. It's only secondarily about you. It's only foundationally about God. It's only secondarily about you. And so when you come, when you come to this table, when you experience it, when you walk up to it, you come first with your mind on God, not on yourself, not on your problems, not on your sin, but as God being the centerpiece God in his nature. If God, if Jesus himself prepares the meal, then this is foundationally more about him than it is about us. Only secondarily does it apply to us. So first, Jesus prepares the meal. We see that in verses 7 through 13. But then second, Jesus is the meal. And we see that in verses 14 through 23. Jesus is the meal. So, Let's look at just the two basic elements of this. The two basic elements are bread and the cup. So we're going to take them in that order. So the bread, what is this? Well, the bread was unleavened bread. And it unleavened meaning there was no yeast, there was no rising ingredient in it. And so the Passover meal was equated with affliction. Or sorry, the Passover meal and the, the unleavened bread was equated with the affliction because it reminded them of their persecution in Egypt. But what does Jesus say? How does he change this? How does he consummate it? How does he deepen the meaning of this affliction that this bread was supposed to represent? He says this. He said, this is my body broken for you, given for you. This is my body given to you. So what's he saying? What's he saying? What's he saying when he says, hey, the bread used to represent all of our affliction, and now he's saying, this is my body, and it's given to you. What he's doing is he's pointing them to the cross. He's pointing to him, he's pointing his disciples to what is going to happen the next day, and that is that he was going to be brutally murdered. I mean, just think about the events of the following day. 
Jesus died in darkness. And darkness was a sign of God's judgment. So Jesus is judged in our place so we can be acquitted. So as he dies, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. The curtain was as thick, literally, as a man's hand. And it separated people from the most holy place. The heart of the temple, the heart of the temple was the symbol of God's presence. And so the curtain separated God from humanity because his holiness, utterly, it just might destroy us because of our sin. But as Jesus' death on the cross happened, sin and judgment, they're dealt with. And the curtain is torn in two. And the way to God is open. And we're therefore invited to a feast, an ultimate feast that Revelation, the end of Revelation talks about. So this is what Jesus is saying when he's talking about the bread. He's saying that in the Old Testament, Israel was saved from their affliction by God. But now, because of his life, because of what would happen the next day, people would be saved through the son's own affliction. Jesus is saying, in a sense, in the Old Testament, Pharaoh's son had to die in order that Israel might be saved. Now, God's own son had to die in order that all of humanity might be saved. That's the bread in this meal. It represents and reminds us of all that God's given to us as a result of the gospel, all that God has given to us as a result of his death and resurrection, all because he died. That's the bread. That's the deeper symbolism that he injects into this bread in this Passover meal. So if that's the bread, what's the cup? What's the cup filled with wine? Well, he does something interesting. When he talks about what the meaning of the cup is, he contrasts the old covenant with the new covenant. And he's saying that because of the atoning work of Christ, the new covenant has been inaugurated. The new covenant has been inaugurated. He says this. He says, the cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So in order to understand the new covenant, we might not need to understand what the old covenant is. So if you go to Exodus 24, you realize that there's a really interesting and curious story. And so the Ten Commandments had already been delivered to the people of God, to Israel, and then the Book of the Covenant, the, what God's words to them, were read out loud by Moses to the people. And this is what the people said. They said, everything that the Lord has said, we will do. Everything that the Lord has said in the Book of the Covenant, we will do. And then Moses wrote down everything the Lord had said, and then we read in verses 5 through 8 this. Then he sent young Israelite men, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in a bowl, and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. Then Moses, he took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. We call this the old covenant. That's when the old covenant began in Exodus 24. And everything that was significant in that moment was doused with blood. The people were doused with blood. The book of the covenant was doused with blood. 
and the bowl, the altar was doused with blood. Everything representing importance in that moment was actually doused with blood, which you can just think about how grisly, how horror movie-esque that was. Unless, unless there was some deep symbolism because people were just dripping with blood in that moment. So what was this blood? Why was it so necessary? The Old Covenant, it was, it was launched with blood at, at its center for two reasons. First, it emphasized the seriousness of sin, of disobedience. And then second, it taught that the payment of sin is death. That's why blood was such an important aspect of the Old Covenant. And so for thousands of years, we, the, Israel lived under the covenant of the Old Covenant, which is what? We will obey all that you've said. All that you've said, we will obey. And yet, we can see that the weakness of the Old Covenant resides in that it hinged on man's and women's own ability to keep it. And we know how that goes. <laughs> we know how that goes. I mean, this is why priests had to daily and yearly sacrifice over and over and over again. Because people couldn't obey. None of us could. Right? And so year after year, day after day, priests had to sacrifice in order to make atonement at one mint. To make God and people one again. And yet it was this unending drama that kept happening. And yet in the midst of it, the prophets actually talked about a new covenant, that one day a covenant would come and it wouldn't be based on human obedience, but it'd be, it would hinge on the obedience of God himself. Jeremiah himself spoke thoroughly about this. And so Jesus, in effect, emphatically is saying, the cup that you see before you, the cup filled with wine, it represents the new covenant. A covenant poured out, as we read, in his own blood. Not by the blood of bulls or lambs or pigeons, but by his own blood. Perfect blood. Unblemished blood. And that's what this represents. Christ's blood, which was shed for you. Christ's blood, which was shed for me. Because in the Old Testament, if you think about it, people dripped externally with blood. But we don't do that, right? That would be really weird, okay? Now we actually drink of the cup. And I think something really symbolic is happening there because the Old Covenant was much more impressed on our behaviors, our outwards. And yet the New Covenant is about internal. And so instead of blood dripping from us physically, externally, we now get to experience the internal blessing of the New Covenant as we come to this table and drink of the juice or drink of the wine. That's the wonderful nature of the new covenant that Jesus is inaugurating there in that meal. And it's fantastic. And so if that's true, if that's what this supper, if that's what this Eucharist, if that's what this communion means, what does it matter? What does it matter? Jesus is in effect saying this meal is all about me. This meal is all about me. I am the meal. And so if that's true, what, is, what does it mean? Well, here are a few. Here are a few things that we need to realize as a result of this. It means, one, that the covenant of grace has come. The new covenant has come, which means you can't earn it. 
You can't earn this meal. You have to partake of it. You have to receive it on its own terms, which is grace alone. That's, what, that's one implication. The second implication is this. If the mark of the Old, peop- the Old Testament people was their obedience to the law, so if the mark of the Old Covenant people was their obedience of the law, then the mark of the people of God in the New Covenant is our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our perfect law-obedient Savior. Third, it means that there are kind of two people in this world. There are those who seek God in whatever form, religion, just whatever religion pops into your mind. There are those who say, okay, I've got to obey on whatever rules, on whatever subjective uh, kind of weight or whatever kind of balance that I kind of can make up or that my religion ex- explains. I come to God and I have to clean myself up or I have to do these certain things or I have to experience these rituals or I have to do these supernatural things. And then when I do those things, then I'm accepted by God. Or you're secondly, you realize you can never come to this table. That you can never warrant a meal with Jesus that you could never warrant an ability to actually be close with God, that you'd be at one with him. And therefore, you can only take it on its own terms, which is completely and utterly relying on Jesus Christ to save you. So that's three. Then there's four. I think this also means that this meal, and this meal that Jesus is talking about and initiating in Luke 22, it's really serious. If Jesus is the meal, this is really serious. And I think often we kind of trivialize it. We normalize it. We diminish it. Maybe we ritualize it or compartmentalize it or whateverize it, right? We do many things to this table. We might come each week and go, okay, yeah, yeah. I like the singing. I like the teaching. But this table, eh. But if Jesus is the meal, if the bread and the wine and the cup represent Christ's perfect life, his brutal death, his resurrection, and the inauguration of the new covenant, then this is really serious. And we need to take it as on its own terms. So, the first section we realize that Jesus prepares the meal. Second, we realize that Jesus is the meal. And then thirdly, we realize something astonishing. That's this that Jesus in this story, in this event, in this narrative, in this meal, he actually serves the meal. He's actually the servant of the meal. If you look at Luke 24, a debate happens, which is really interesting. It's really bizarre. So this debate happens, they're like, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Which I remember always going, this doesn't make sense. You would never, I mean, you would never bring this up. You would never do this. You have this great meal, this Passover, and then you'd have this weird squabble about, I'm better than you. And, you know, it, doesn't, it never made sense until I just started thinking about it. If you read the text, there's a lot of, con- or a lot of um, talk about the kingdom. And every kingdom has a king, right? I think what's going on here is that they're actually getting it. The disciples are actually getting it in part, not in full, but in part they're going, okay, Jesus really is going to die. And I think what's going on is they're saying, who's going to take his place? Who's going to lead the movement? Who's greatest among us to actually do that? And so I think in one sense, we might actually be having this conversation as they did. 
And so they do. And so what they ask this question, who's the greatest? And how does Jesus respond? He gives a rather lengthy answer about who is the greatest in the kingdom. And it's a paradox. It's a paradox. It's one of my favorite definitions of a para- paradox is from Chesterton. He said, a paradox is truth standing on its head, asking for attention. And so that's, that's what this is doing. You're going, as you read this, you're going, really? This is what's the greatest? Because what does he say? It's not the one with the most power or wealth or prestige. He says that at the end of the day, the person who is least in the kingdom or the youngest or the person who serves And it's interesting because he asks a rhetorical question in the text. He goes, okay, you're sitting at Big River. You're having a great dinner. And you're eating. Who's more important in this meal? The person who sits, reclines to the table and eats, or the waiter or waitress who serves you? Who's more important in this? And then Jesus actually answers in verses 27. In verse 27, he answers it and he goes, well, obviously, it's the person who reclines at the table. It's the person who at Big River who's eating. They're more important in the meal than the waiter and waitress. Then he flips it. He completely and utter flips it because this is what Jesus says. But I among you as one who serves you. Which is really bizarre because actually early on, if you read, it says uh, that Jesus reclined with them, verses 14. You're like, wait a second. You said you reclined, and now you said you're the waiter in this, that you're the server in this. And that's the bizarre, crazy thing about this, because Jesus not only prepares it, Jesus not only is the mirror, now he's actually serving the meal. He's acting as a servant in this and saying, the greatest, the greatest people in the kingdom are not those who recline at a table, eat a fancy feast. They're actually the person who serves. And I think we need to just talk about service for a second, because I think we get service wrong a lot of times. I think we exclusively think of service as a verb and not as a noun. We think of service projects, or I served you, or I, I gave up some things, or I bent down, or I gave some money, right? We think of it in terms of something we do, but we don't often think about it as something that you are. And in verses 24 through 30, you actually see Jesus actually flipping back and forth between talking about servants as a as a noun and service as a verb. It's really interesting. I think service as a verb, the act of serving someone, the act of actually helping them for their good, I think is only possible if first and foremost, a servant is an identity. It's a noun. And this is what I mean, if this illustrates. I was talking to this guy. He's a good friend of mine. And um, this was a while ago. And he is a servant. If, I don't know if he'd ever taken one of those spiritual inventory gift tests, but I guarantee access service would have been his number one. And I was trying to affirm him one day, and I was like, man, you just, you just had the gift of service. You were such a servant. And he kind of looked down and said, um, no. I was like, yes, you are. I see you all the time. Like, you were such a servant. And he goes, let me give you an illustration. He goes, I love, or I try to really serve my wife. And so I'll do the dishes, I'll mop the floor, I'll vacuum, I'll clean up and put things back where they're supposed to be. He said, but I realize that I'll I'll do this. But then something in my heart eventually says and cries out, no more. This and no more. My service has a point, 
a fixed point in which I'm not going to go any further. And so eventually, I start you know, doing all these things and serving and trying to help out my wife. And then I realize, I'm not really serving. Because at the end of the day, I have a point where I say, I'm not going to go any further. I'm going to stop because it's not fair. I've done too much. I've served in a way that now here is my point. And yet, he said, and yet he said, that's why I don't feel like I'm a very good servant. Because I have a fixed point where I won't take it any further. Where I just stop and say, all right, I've done enough. Or my heart just gets bitter and frustrated and I just go, well, why aren't you serving me? Or why aren't I? And then you become this fairness game that is so devastating. And I just thought like, oh my gosh, I so do that too. I help out, I serve, but then there's this fixed point where I'm not going to take it any further. And yet, a true servant, he doesn't do that, does he? A true servant, she doesn't do that, does she? There's no fixed point. That's why many of the servants that are true servants, they're probably not going to have any books written about. You probably don't even know who they are because they're so secretive about it. They're just so behind the scenes. They serve in such a powerful way that just makes us all go, huh, huh. And I think it's just so interesting because look at the response that Jesus has. In the midst of everything, in the midst of everything, he doesn't just lash out on them and be like, you brats, think of all the things I've done with you, for you. I've healed, I've taught you, I've given you a seat at my Passover. I've explained all these things. Now you want to know who's the greatest? Like, how dare you? And he honestly answers their questions, which is really helpful, I think, for all of us who have questions sometimes. That Jesus actually enters into those questions. And he's patient with them. But not even that. He actually blesses them. He blesses them at the end and says, that you're going to eat and drink at my table and sit on the throne judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, you're going you're to be in the kingdom you're going to eat a meal with me one day face to face. They don't even get what that means. He blesses them in the midst of their pettiness. And all of that happened right before one of the most remarkable things. John talks about it. Jesus gets down and he washes their feet. An act of utter humility. And he washes their feet. Dirty feet. I don't know if you've ever seen truly dirty feet. right? And there's Jesus with all the smell and sweat and grime, and he's on his knees serving them while washing their feet. I don't even like really touching my wife's feet. And here's the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, and he stoops so low in humility that he actually washes the disciples' feet. And then he says, the most important person in the kingdom is person who serves, the person who's not worried about what they're going to get out of this or their prestige. How wonderful is this? And so we, we, we realize that Jesus not only prepares the meal, not only is the meal, but he is thirdly a servant of the meal, which I think has some crazy implications. And the first is this, that this meal here it can only be eaten. It can only be experienced in true humility. In true humility. In servant-like matter. Because Jesus himself exemplified that for us. 
Now, I grew up Catholic, and when people would come forward to take the Eucharist, there's something that only a few people did, but I always thought it was really interesting, and that's some people would get down on their knees before the priest, before they received communion, before they received the bread, and they'd get down on their knees in an act of humility that they didn't deserve this. And as I've thought about it, I've been like, wow, that, what a powerful picture that is. Did you come to the table not as, yeah, I'm, you're welcome, God. Like, your family was lacking until I got here. But as, you, I shouldn't be at this table. I don't know if you've ever been to a dinner party where you're like, I don't think I should be here. There are more important people here. That's, that's what this is about here. That none of us deserve this. And we only get to walk up metaphorically on our knees in humility because at the end of the day, none of us deserve this. And then secondly, we realize that many times there's a couple paths that God gives us to take. There's the path of exaltation, of notoriety, and then sometimes there's the path of humility, of service. And I think what Jesus is talking about, about the kingdom of God and who is really greatest in the kingdom, I think we should all at least pause at those moments in which we so desperately want to take those, those paths of exaltation. And this goes completely and utterly against everything we've been taught. We've been taught that if you have one job and another job, you take it if you can work up the ladder. If you can get into two schools, you go to the better school. Right? If you can get a job teaching at a top-tier university, you take that over, you take a, a, another school. We're taught this all along, and yet, I think, sometimes, service, sometimes humility, sometimes this meal reminds us that the greatest in the kingdom are those who actually make great sacrifices in humility and serve. And I think a great illustration and a great testimony of this was a man named Henry Nowen. I don't know if you know him, but he was a man who was at the top of his theological profession. He was a theologian. He worked at Notre Dame, then at Yale, then at Harvard. And then at kind of the climax of his notoriety and the best of his profession, he gives it all up. He gives it all up to work in Ontario with adults with disabilities, with impairments. And for the rest of his life until his death, he worked there. And I can imagine his friends, I can imagine his family thought, what a waste of a good mind. What a waste of a good mind. And yet, as far as I can see, the greatest treasure and the greatest joy in Henry Nowen's life came as a result of that, of giving it all up, of saying, I'm a, I, I want to serve for the rest of my life people who probably don't deserve my service. But then again, I don't deserve God's service as well, and he gives it to me, represented in this meal. So in conclusion, I just want to tell one story and make one point. And this is the story. When I was in college, I tutored. And I would drive with a buddy to Rainier Valley, which is in Seattle, and I would tutor these two guys. And for a year or two, we tutored them. I loved these 
boys. They were in middle school. I truly did. And one of them hit the literal jackpot. His mom told them <laughs> uh, that he had to apply for this scholarship, this academic scholarship. And so he did. And if you don't know, there's the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They give out scholarships and for people who can't afford college. And so what this is, is if you win this, you can go to any college you can get into tuition-free. So it doesn't matter if you go to community college or if you go to Princeton. They're paying the full ticket price no matter where you go. You just have to be able to get into it. And so here's this guy that I'm tutoring, helping with his homework, and he gets it. And I'm trying to explain it to him going, you don't understand what you've got. You've got Willy Wonka's golden ticket, all right? Right? Anywhere you want to go to, anywhere. You can get out of here, like, anywhere. And he'd be like, you know, he's, he's, you know, more into swag. And, you know, he's just like, you know, it's not a big deal or whatever. And he was a smart kid. He just always would downplay it. And I'm, like, trying to. Every time we hung out, I'd be like, man, hey, this is so exciting. You, you, you got it. And then one day, he stopped coming into tutoring. And it was a couple weeks, and I go, uh-oh, what's going on? And so uh, two or three weeks in, I found out what happened. He was with some buddies, and he was at an abandoned house, and he took a bottle, and he threw it, and it broke a window. And he saw the police, and he started running, and eventually he got arrested, and he got a record. And there's a few stipulations, but one of the stipulations for this scholarship is you got to stay out of trouble. You can't get arrested. And so with one stupid act, it was gone. And he never showed up because he thought, what was the point? What was the point of this all? And I think that story, and I think as we read this text and as we experience this meal, I think And I'm right to assume that sometimes we come to this table and our hearts are cold. Our hearts are just like my friend's heart when he's like, ah, it's not a big deal. So we come to this table and we think, yeah, you know, it's cool. I know it's important. But our hearts have been cooled by it. Maybe at one point they were warm. Maybe at one point you were like ecstatic. Maybe at one point you were like, I just can't even believe that I can take communion. I just can't even believe I can experience this. I can't believe that I can literally eat the body and bread of Jesus and what it represents in his life, death, and resurrection. And then through whatever happens, we become cool and we become in some ways too cool for this school. So if that's you today, if your heart is cool, It could mean either A, maybe, maybe you've never thought this is a wonderful meal. Maybe you're not a Christian. If Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and what it means for you that you are at one with him, that you get to experience life as a result of that, if that doesn't do something strangely exciting to you, if if you don't start getting excited and pumped, if you're like, this is too crazy, if that isn't a constant and continual reality in your life, Maybe you've never experienced new life. And if that's you in this room, if you're not a Christian, or if you're wondering if you are, I just beg you to consider if you came with a friend or to talk with them tonight. They would love, I promise you, 
Any Christian loves to talk about the gospel, loves to talk about Jesus and what he represents in our lives. Or two, if you didn't come with a friend, there are going to be people in the back who would love to pray with you and talk with you, how to experience, how to actually be able to, for the first time, or truly in repentance and new belief, experience the blessing of the new covenant, the blessing of this meal. Or second, maybe you are a Christian. Maybe you just go, I've just been cold to this. I don't desire this meal. I don't really desire the gospel. I don't desire what this meal represents. And I just say this. There's a key in this text as to the antidote to that. There are probably many antidotes, but Jesus gives this one. He says, remember. There are seasons in marriage that you're like, I'm, this is wonderful. Then there are some hard days in marriage. There are some days when you wake up and you're like, wow, you married me and I married you, right? And you, it's a sobering moment. And so the fuzzy-duzzy feelings and the wonderful things, sometimes they fade away and you're like, interesting. Like, these are hard days. And then you start remembering, as I did this week, of my first date, of when I told her that I liked her, the first time I said I love you. I start remembering the birth of our children, the funny things, the hard things. You just start remembering and then just strangely, but wonderfully, my heart is warmed towards her. The same is true with Jesus. The same is true with this meal. The more you think of him, the more you meditate on him, the more you experience him, the more you worship him, the more the coldness will just drift away and you'll realize how wonderful it is to experience the true blessing that Jesus prepared the meal, that Jesus is the meal, and ultimately, Jesus serves us the meal. Would you all pray with me?